Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Minister of Health Christine Elliott announces a new health care system which has its roots in Hamilton. Ontario public school teachers are working to rule. What does that mean for the kids? And the trains are rolling again across the country. And Quebec gets its propane. Should they really be building a pipeline? Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton is expected or is getting the green light today to become one of the first cities to adopt a, a new system, a new health care system. Uh, and uh, the whole idea here is to put everything under one umbrella and uh, have a massive, massive overhaul under this new super agency. To talk more about all of this, joining us now is Christine Elliott, Minister of Health, and she is with us now. Christine, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. A uh, pleasure to join you, Scott. Thank you. So some have said that this will result in a loss of services or a cut in services. What is different between the old system and what you are introducing today? Well, actually, this is great news for uh, patients and families in Hamilton, and we're actually going to be adding to care. We want to make sure that care is going to be centered around patients and that making sure that uh, for every step that they have in their health care journey, whether it's in hospital, returning home, or long-term care, that they're going to have the services and the supports that they need. So what's been created and approved today is a, a local Ontario health team, a Hamilton healthcare team, and this is consisting of, of providers, it's public health, it's hospitals, long-term care, mental health and addictions groups, uh, family doctors, all coming together as one team to support patient needs. So it, they will be able to plan for and deliver on local health care. So this is actual people who uh, live and work in Hamilton that are going to be planning and providing the care for fellow, for patients uh, across the region. So what is the objective here with this new system as compared to the old? What is different here? There is a big difference here in the sense that there is integrated care. So very often what happens when people are discharged from hospital but they still perhaps need home care, they actually feel like they're checking out of the entire system and that that it's their uh, problem to try and navigate their way back into the system. Very often if people need home care when they leave the hospital, by the time they leave the hospital they don't know who the home care provider is, when they will be coming or what services they'll be providing. That changes under the new system so that all of that is provided to the patient before they even leave the hospital. Their care is connected and moves forward. So it doesn't matter whether you're in hospital, whether you're in long-term care, wherever you are, the next step is going to be planned in advance for you, and you will just move seamlessly from one section of the healthcare sector to another. So correct me if I'm wrong here, so this more or less follows the patient through the care system as opposed to out of one institution into another set of services, that sort of thing. This is to sort of lead them from one to the other. Absolutely. It makes sure that they get the care and the supports that they need every step along the way. And that's not happening under the system now. And a lot of healthcare professionals have been very frustrated because they haven't really been able to work together as a team. They, uh, they've only had one-way relationships with the Ministry of Health. So we've taken those barriers away, and they can now plan together and start filling in the gaps that they know are there 
but they haven't been able to do anything about them before. Now they can. They can fill in those gaps and make sure that patients are supported every step along the way. So they are our, uh, the health professionals are very excited about it. They can't wait to get started. Uh, we're very pleased with the work they're doing. It's a fantastic team that uh, Ontario, that Hamilton has put together, and we look forward to working with them from the ministry. Uh, uh, why Hamilton? Hamilton, one of the first cities for you to, to implement this. Why this city? Well, because the Hamilton team put in such a great application, and in fact, many of the um, health professionals in Hamilton have been doing this kind of work um, even before we uh, came forward with the idea of Ontario Health Teams, they just knew that this work had to be done. And despite the barriers that existed, they made it happen. So now that we've taken the barriers away, we're making it easier for them to do a lot of work that they already have been doing. So it's a tremendous team effort, and I, I really congratulate and thank them for all of their hard work. Uh, that was my next point, uh, Minister, was this sounds like something that we've been doing in Hamilton all along as we watched uh, each various uh, hospital within the system specialize in certain services to make a, a complete package that kind of blankets the city. Is the province learning from that system? Um, definitely we did. Uh, there are some uh, great examples across the province about how to integrate services and provide that kind of connected care for patients. And Hamilton was uh, a, a very definitely noteworthy in that respect. Uh, what has the response been? Because obviously opposition always points to services or cuts. Uh, your response to that, what's the response been like within the healthcare field? Well, in actual fact, what we're doing is adding to the health care budget. We're putting $1.9 billion more into health care this year than last year. So that's not what this exercise is about. This exercise is meant to provide better patient-centered care, connected services, easier access to care, make it easier for patients to navigate the system and to know exactly where they can get the help that they need. Uh, key phrases certainly around election time in and around health care are always wait times and, and hallway medicine and such. Does this do anything to address that? Will this help that? Yes, absolutely. This is going to reduce wait times because we want to make sure that people can move throughout the system um, as their needs require. And it definitely will help reducing hallway health care because we know that people will be able to receive the uh, care that they need in their home when they're released from hospital. Right now, because people don't always get connected with home care in a timely manner, they end up back in hospital with complications. We don't want that to happen. Uh, People want to stay in their own home. And what Hamilton does really well is connects home care with the people in the hospital so that if a complication does arise, that the home care professionals will be able to receive advice uh, from the hospital and we'll be able to know what to do without that person having to come back into the hospital emergency department. Uh, so this is going to really help us bring down the numbers of people receiving hallway health care. A lot of this sounds like common sense, Christine. Do you think it's going to work? Absolutely. I know it's going to work. I know that there are very dedicated, very hardworking health professionals out there that have put hundreds and hundreds of hours into this application and this plan. It's been successfully approved, and they know what they're doing, and they will provide the care 
that patients expect and deserve to receive. How difficult is it to make a transition like this from one system to another? Well, it has to be done in phases because it is a, uh, it is a huge transformation and a modernization as well. We want to make sure that people can uh, use technology as well to make online appointments and have online appointments in some cases with their family physicians or perhaps specialists. So something like this doesn't turn around overnight, but the status quo is not supportable either. We knew that we needed to make this change, and we're going to do it in stages so that we don't interrupt patient care. We want to make sure that patients can continue to uh, receive care from the same practitioners that they had before, but it's going to be done in a more coordinated manner so that if they need extra help or if they need to see specialists, it's going to be easier for them to access. Uh, so how did this process work, Christine? I mean, did, did, did health care uh, providers uh, apply, for, uh, uh, apply for this? Uh, uh, how, did you, how did the process work of, of making the transition and getting these teams on board? Well, it started by, uh, with a document and a conversation that we had with health providers across Ontario talking about what the vision was and the intention to create local Ontario health teams. The, uh, we then received 151 applications from uh, prospective teams indicating their readiness to, uh, to start forming the teams. From that, 31 teams were chosen to proceed to the full application process, which uh, required uh, the, the completion of the, the application, what many questions that were asked. It was also followed up by a visit to the local teams by the, uh, the, the selection team. And then ultimately, uh, there was the selection of the, of the first teams to proceed. So Hamilton uh, is definitely one. We also announced one in Mississauga yesterday. There are going to be more to be announced in the next short while. But again, uh, congratulations to Hamilton for a first class, first wonderful team effort. Are most uh, excited to be a part of this, excited to be a part of this experience of changing these things? Absolutely, yes. The health professionals are um, very, very happy about this. They have been asking for a change in the system for uh, the ability to be able to work together with other providers as a single team for many years. And so they are very happy about being able to do this, being able to fill in the gaps that they've been frustrated about, knowing that the gaps exist but not being able to do anything about them. Now they have that opportunity, so they are eager to get started and uh, really looking forward to working together. So all of these teams would operate underneath the super agency umbrella? Yes, the uh, Ontario Health, uh, the, the, the bigger organization, will be the... Um, the uh, operating, not operating, but they will be reporting uh, on their success to Ontario Health and Ontario Health will be funding them as well. But once the funding has been received, it will be up to the local teams to deliver the care and plan for the care in their geographic area. And I think that's really important because it's the actual providers who know their uh, community, who know what the needs are, who have come up with three areas already that they want to work on in Hamilton. 
They want to work with adults with mental health and addictions concerns, uh, children and youth with mental health and addiction concerns, and older adults with chronic health conditions as their first projects, which will then gradually increase to include all of the patients within the geographic area. But again, it has to be phased in over time, but they are eager to get started working. How, and excuse my ignorance here, but how is that different from the old Lynn system? Well, under the old Lynn system, the Lynn's worked with primarily with the Ministry of Health under the old rules, which had uh, basically a one-way relationship between hospitals and the, the Lynn's and the ministry, long-term care again. So there were silos that were created that didn't allow for the integration of care for patients. This is an entirely new model that says everyone, it's one healthcare team for all of the patients within an area, and everyone has a role to play, be it a hospital, a long-term care home, a mental health and addictions provider. They are all there to serve the patients and to provide, if it's necessary, um, a, a warm hands-on tra- transition if they're going from one part of the system to the other. We didn't have that before, and there were definitely gaps in transitions and service between particularly hospitals and long-term care. The uh, new teams are going to make sure that, that uh, there are no gaps in care, that there's a seamless transition for patients. Uh, last question, Minister. When will patients start to notice the difference? When will patients start to see the result? They will start to see the results as soon as the teams um, start in operation. Right now, what they're doing is organizing themselves internally to be prepared to start offering their services to the public, and that will be uh, within the next coming months. But as soon as they start operating, patients will start seeing the difference and seeing the the, uh, connected care that they'll be receiving. Joining us has been Christine Elliott, Minister of Health. Uh, Hamilton today getting the green light from Ontario's health minister to become one of the first cities in Ontario to adopt a massive overhaul in the health care system. Christine Elliott, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I am a man who is 57 years of age had a fabulous time enjoying the Ontario public education school system, but I remember being a teenager and talking about this exact same issue. Since then, we have had NDP governments, we have had liberal governments, we have had conservative governments, and we have the same discussions every couple of years. Is anybody else tired of this ongoing dance, which is funded by a bottomless pit of public money because I know I am because having kids that are 17 and 12 we've been through it at least twice I think we're working on the third time here however this time uh, extracurriculars are not going to mean the kids have to forfeit the clubs or the musical or field trips so they say Uh, but I find it fascinating that that these same people every couple of years attack the government of the day even the teachers premier premier mcginty way back when made him walk the plank when he asked them during the height of the recession when everyone was losing their job or taking pay cuts or getting no raise at all to take a pause they said walk the plank teachers premier and that's how we ended up with kathleen Wynne. and that's how we ended up where we are now 
So, you know, every time this comes about, the unions pick a fight with the government of the day. They tell you that the government of the day is this, that, and the other, and the same thing they say every single year. And then they move on to another government and another negotiation. And I don't know about you, but as a student and as a parent, I'm sick and tired of it. Just saying, find another way to make this happen. Because really, we have a monopoly here because we don't get, a cho- we don't get to pick and choose where our education dollar is spent, where we want our kids to go to school, what system we want to have our school in, our kids going to school in. So our hands are cuffed behind our back as they are every couple of years, two or three years, when this dance starts again. And they all say it's about the kids. Well, let me remind you, it's not a student union that you see at schools. It's a teacher's union that is fully financed through the wages and contributions of teachers, not the students. You know, that would be like me having a union and going on strike and saying that the union saying we're going on strike for you, the listeners, (laughs) so I can get more money. Yet we fall for this time and time and time again. And here we go. All right. So what happens? Let's find out what the latest is and what happens as of tomorrow. Work to rule effective today for school teachers. What is government reaction? What could we see happening here? Let's bring in Sabrina Nanji, Queens Park, Global uh, News, Queens Park reporter and is with us now. Sabrina, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. Bring us up to date. What do we have here? So, yeah, today uh, elementary teachers and high school teachers began a work to rule campaign. Uh, As you mentioned, they said that this is not targeting students. It won't impact the kids, but it's more of an administrative job action campaign. So teachers, for instance, won't be putting comments on report cards that are due out soon. They won't be participating in any standardized testing like EQAO stuff. Um, and they won't be attending certain meetings beyond the normal school day. There's also, uh, they've also set up picket lines um, before and after school and during lunchtime, which they say are not going to hinder kids' access to the building. Um, but they are also willing to ramp negotiations up. The high school teachers have bargaining dates set with the province for uh, tomorrow and Thursday, and they said that it is completely possible that they could ramp up um, to ramp up to a full on strike action. That it's a possibility, and this has come after months of tense negotiations at the bargaining table with the provincial government and school boards. So we're talking uh, Elementary Teachers Federation and the Ontario Secondary uh, Teachers Federation. I guess at this point, uh, the Catholic Board is going into conciliation, so they're still out. Um, Right. The Catholic teachers have voted um, in favor of a strike, 97%, which is, you know, an overwhelming strike mandate. But you're right, they are not in a legal position yet uh, to file for a strike. But if, if it comes to that, they they will go for it. Right. So uh, as you mentioned, and as they've been reporting, this won't be effective, uh, won't affect extracurricular activities, sports clubs, uh, field trips, what have you. Uh, It won't impact the students. Who will it impact? Do we know? Yeah, it's it's mainly targeting administrative work. So and um, the ministry level uh, duties. Mm -hmm. So essentially, it is supposed to be a 
you know, a little bit of a jab at the government and and the employers, which are the school boards. And it is a, a move to sort of, uh, I, I guess, maybe get the government to, to come on side with some of the outstanding issues at the bargaining table. Um, on the other side, the government, you know, is saying that they are being reasonable and they have made moves recently uh, in recent weeks to walk back some of their more controversial uh, plans. Uh, for instance, you know, high schools are going up to an average of 25 students per class instead of an average of 28. It's, it's still going up than the current mm-hmm. 22.5, but, you know, a little bit less maybe egregious than the teachers had felt that change. And in addition, they're also tamping down the number of mandatory online courses that high school students would need to graduate. So they would only need two instead of the planned four. Sabrina, any idea why the change in work to rule at this point? Because normally in in past situations like this, uh, prior to a strike, when they decide to start with a, a work to rule, it usually means a loss of extracurriculars, sports and field trips and that sort of thing. Uh, any idea why they're not doing that this time? Um, I mean, you, you sort of touched on it a little bit. You know, the, uh, these things tend to um, impact students a lot, and, and they are sort of uh, the ones who who may end up getting, you know, the, the rough end of the deal in this. But I think the unions are being very careful in how they're framing this, and they want to make it clear that uh, this is not something that will, they've stressed that's not something that will impact students, while we have the education minister who, it's actually his birthday today. I don't think that a work to rule campaign is the best present necessarily for him. Wow, but yeah. yeah. He's uh, no. sort of placing the blame um just finish the thought he's sort of placing the blame on on the unions and accusing them of, of escalating job action um and and that you know who really ends up getting hurt in this situation is students yeah i don't think he's uh he's enjoying the birthday uh, celebrations at the keg tonight or anything <laughs> like that no uh what about the handing out of info because again as i mentioned you know i'm biased in this because i've got kids in the system but uh and obviously i'm an angry parent so, yeah, <laughs> so right, accept yeah. that but uh, obviously, uh, uh, you were talking about how they were going to be setting up these information pickets and so on and so forth. But you did mention that they won't be impeding with the flow of traffic or students or parents to and from the school. It was interesting. We did get a note from the school saying that that was the case, that they should not be stopping you. They should not be impeding your your way into the school. Uh, again, right. how is all this going to work? This appears to be new. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess they, they are saying that, you know, it's the intent is not to impede access or, you know, uh, stop students from, from coming to class or, or feel intimidated or, or anything like that. Um, I, I do believe that it is possible that they will ramp up. But like I said, there are more bargaining dates set for this week. So um, we're I guess any, anything could could happen at, at the bargaining table. Right. Uh, do we know at this point what sticking points are? We've always heard of the class size, but in the end, it always ends up with a remuneration. Any more on that, right. on what sticking points are? Yeah, I mean, I guess it, in terms of compensation, you know, um, one of the major sticking points at issue is is uh, this 1% ca- uh, cap in wage increases that the government has legislated and has also said they want to stick to. They they do have one education contract under their belt with QP school support staff, and that deal does have the, the 1% um, increase, capped increase in compensation. But teachers have been asking for a cost of living adjustment, which for this year is about 2%, um, much more than 
what the government is wanting. But there are a few other things. Teachers have raised concerns about uh, health and safety, you know, addressing violence in the classroom. And uh, the elementary teachers have wanted a commitment to the current full-day kindergarten model, which um, the education minister said today, again, that, that he had committed to it. So it, it goes beyond compensation. But yes, you're right that that tends to be the, the major sticking point. Uh, as always, some of us, uh, some of the time we forget that this is just part of the process. This is part of the dance in order to get a collective uh, agreement. Sometimes we all get caught up in the hype of it all, especially when it does you know, become negotiated uh, in the public. Uh, any sort of sense uh, of, of how each side is dug in on this? Any sort of sense in, on where this can go? And of course, I'm asking you to look into a crystal ball here. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of this is just due process. And, and you're right in that this has sort of been um, discussed maybe more openly in, in the public than in past years. You know, the, the high school teachers have launched a website where they are putting out these bargaining proposals publicly, whereas normally this is something that happens, you know, um, behind closed doors during negotiations. So that, that that's one aspect. And, you know, in, in terms of us being here again in, in four years or how much this is just par for the course, the education minister has been asked about back-to-work legislation or whether or not he thinks teachers should be an essential service, which would, you know, um, uh, limit their ability to strike if they were considered an essential service. And the, the education minister has been rather cagey. He hasn't weighed in either way on that. He has maintained he's sticking to, he, he maintains that he wants to hammer out a deal at the bargaining table and uh, settle this that way. Um, but uh, it is not um, unusual for the Ford government to to table back to work legislation or to head off a strike. They did they did something similar last winter with the power workers. They they recalled the House early tabled legislation that would head off you know a potential strike. So. It's not unusual for this government, but they've by no means committed to it and still say that uh, it, it's when, still going to go through the bargaining process. When this happens every couple of years, many talk about deeming them an essential service. Uh, mm. Is that a debate worth having? Uh, obviously, the uh, the education minister wants to get the deal settled rather than talk about different ways of do, of negotiating while we're right in the middle of something. Um, of but, but, do, but do essential, if we declare this an essential service, does it end up costing more? Do we know that? Um, I, I haven't seen any specifics um, about the, the numbers on that, but I think uh, there might be... Because it seems be it a, sort of seems obvious that then, okay, why don't we make them an essential service? But I guess you could say that about, you could say that now about the, the CN train, right. the rail strike. Let's make them essential service. For sure. And there have been arguments in favor of that, um, not least because, you know, of the, the child care aspect of, of um, the way our education system right. works. Right. but. But also, I, I think that that might be a bit of a, a longer process. I, I don't know if the teacher unions would, would be on board with that. Like I said, it, it would limit their ability to, to strike. And if nothing else, it might mean li- labor peace um, and maybe no, no strike type disrupt, disruption in future. But I think that that is not a conversation that, that anyone wants to be having um, in this moment, maybe People are still sort of focused on the current deal at the at the bargaining table. All right. So Ontario high school and elementary teachers starting work to rule today. But the good news is there are they are meeting and there are meetings on the horizon to move this forward. Yep. 
All right, Sabrina and Angie's been with us. Global News, Queen's Park reporter. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Sabrina, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. It is 122. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Going to be fascinating to see how this does move forward, uh, especially with a... Uh, the government, the Ontario government asking for a 1% cap on teacher salaries moving forward uh, through this, uh, through this uh, contract, when this is, in fact, what got Premier Dalton McGuinty in trouble way back when, it was when he asked uh, the teachers' unions to take a pause during the height of the recession. When uh, none of us were getting raises, everything was flatlined, some losing jobs uh, and such. Meanwhile, I remember very distinctively the teachers getting 2% for the three years right through the center of the recession. Uh, 6% over those three years, while many of us uh, got nothing and some lost jobs. Uh, So it'll be fascinating to see if this cap uh, works, because at the end of the day, when uh, Premier Dalton McGuinty asked the teachers unions to take a pause, they got rid of him. They made him walk the plank. Life got difficult. The next thing you know, he's out. He's gone. And we ended up with Premier Kathleen Wynne. And McGuinty was the teacher's premier. Didn't matter. Take him out at the knees. We want more. And again, as I said at the beginning of all of this, you know, I, I, I'm 57 years of age. I remember dealing this, with this as a kid, being a teenager in high school, and wondering, you know, phoning my mom, are we, are we going to school tomorrow? From the CNE on Labor Day weekend. Are we going to school tomorrow or are we on strike? No, they settled it. Last hour. Get your ass home. Okay. And the same thing has been happening. As I grew up, I had kids, they grew up, growing up, we're dealing with the same stuff. And they make it sound every couple of years like it's a new problem. Like it's, this government is absolutely bananas. So then they dangle the carrot in front of the next one to get what they want. Then they kick them out. Then they dangle the carrot in front of the next one and then they kick them out. Because we lost the teacher's premier through these discussions, which led to Kathleen Wynne, who took us so far to the left, we ended up with Doug Ford. Thank you. Thank you for having such an impact on the political system, with tongue firmly planted in cheek. So why does this continuously happen? Because we don't have a choice. Parents can't go buy another teacher somewhere, rent another teacher, go into another school. We don't have that option. Like if a company goes on strike, you buy the product from across the road or you find another way to deliver it. But with a publicly funded taxpayer's uh, educational system, the union just continues, continues, continues to do the same thing every couple of years. And it doesn't matter who the political party is. NDP, liberal, conservative, doesn't matter. It's the same argument. It's the same shtick. And it's all about the students. Do you see the people at CN saying, this is all about our customers. This is all about the students. It's all about the people who ship their stuff via rail. That's BS. 
It's about working conditions and the employees. Why is it the teachers stand up and hide behind the students and say this is all for them? It's not for the students at all. It's a labor union that defends the rights of the teachers, and rightly so. But why do they get to use our kids as pawns? Saying it's all about the kids, it's all about the class size. B.S. It's all about money. It's all about money. And it happens every couple of years, no matter what the government of the day is. And working to rule, at least maybe they're listening to, oh, we're not going to affect the students' teams. We're not going to affect any extracurriculars. We're not going to do, we're not going to take away any of the things that the kids actually remember about school over a lifetime. So let's keep going with that because there's zero customer service here. And that's like me going on strike, shutting down the radio station and saying, I'm doing it for the listener. I'm doing it for you guys. So what? I can get more money and do a better show for you? Are you kidding me? I think you'd see right through that. Well, why don't we see through this? It's the same old story every year. And it's like, it's, it's, they're, they're beautiful at rejuvenating this, at retelling the same old story as if it's new, if it's just a new problem, a new government. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we were talking last week about a rail strike and, of course, what its impact would be on the country, moving goods east to west, west to east and such. And uh, I guess after about a week, uh, blammo. We've got ourselves a deal, and it looks like a uh, tentative deal has been reached to end this strike. Uh, Wednesday at 6 a.m., service will resume. To talk more about all of this, Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at Groot School of Business at McMaster. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Uh, What's different here, Marvin? When we talked about this uh, a week or so ago, uh, it was about, I guess, the CN had just announced layoffs. Um, and then, of course, a strike. What what was the give and take here? What was gained from this strike for the employees? Mm. Well, you're asking great questions, and at the moment there seems to be a bit of a news blackout on that. Right now they're kissing and hugging and shaking hands and saying it was all a good deal, but we really don't know yet. All the details have not been released. Just to remind you, when the union, they're represented by the Teamsters, decided to call the strike, they were complaining about uh, several things. One of them was the... Uh, work conditions, that they felt there were some unsafe work conditions that the uh, employees were being asked to work around, and they were going to try to change those rules, some things about shift work, on-call times, and what have you. And the union insisted it had very little to do with compensation. It was more about safety and working conditions. Now, CN's response at the time was, don't believe that. We don't ask anybody to do anything unsafe. It's all about the money. And that's why a week ago, this is when the strike began, I was quite worried that it looked like both sides had settled into some intractable positions, and this could go on for quite a while. And in fact, the question we asked a week ago was, well, how many days would this go before the federal government would act to order both sides back to work? This is what happened in 2009. The CN strike began on a Monday. Just two days later on the Wednesday, the federal government of Stephen Harper uh, uh, introduced back-to-work legislation. And then amazingly, on that Wednesday night, both sides settled. Uh, today, in, in announcing that they'd come to some agreement, and as you correctly pointed out, full service resumes tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., 
they actually gave credit to the liberals. This is the Teamsters speaking. Yeah. They said two things. First, we, we want to thank the ministers. And so our own Philomena Tassi, who is the labor minister under Mr. Trudeau's government, but she's from Hamilton, uh, and also Transport Minister Mark Garneau, and they offered some mediation that apparently behind the scenes they were trying to help. And also we thank you for not pulling the trigger. Previous governments have forced us back to work, said what we do was an essential service. You didn't do that. You didn't pull the trigger. Now, in fairness, it wasn't possible for him to call the trigger, pull the trigger, because our our federal government's not sitting at the moment. That's not supposed to happen until next Thursday. I had wondered last week when I chatted with you right. whether this might lead to an emergency recall to do this, change the timeline. But today, I'm sure everyone in Ottawa is breathing a lot easier. So what sort of concessions would have been made? Again, prior to this, there was a layoff. So what? Uh, how does the layoff play into this and, and, and moving forward? Yeah. Do, uh, are there people that will not be laid off? Is, are the others that stay just given more money? Yeah. So as far as we know, you have to think of these as two independent things. So the layoff notices that went out were actually looking six months down the road and said, if we get this kind of negative impact in the economy that we think might happen, we may have to lay you off. It doesn't necessarily mean they will be laid off. It just is to say, we're telling you now that this may happen in six months. So as the famous phrase go, govern yourself accordingly. Don't, don't go spending money that you may not have. In other words, saying it. So that was the layoff. Now, this is, is really about everybody who has a job today, whether you're going to be laid off in six months or not. And I'm sure there is, uh, if this is anything like the automobile company's deals, there's probably a signing bonus for coming to an agreement. And there's probably some changes to cost of living adjustments, benefits, and there's probably some uh, work conditions that have changed. We don't know the details yet. The unions are always famous for taking them to the rank-and-file members first before they make them public. But that's probably the big thing that's changed on that front. Now, from my standpoint as a business school professor, what this has reminded us, all of us, uh, uh, every citizen of Canada, is how important railways are to the functioning of our economy. Uh, yesterday, on Monday, there were upset farmers who were protesting in Montreal, and they were bringing, quote, wet corn, corn that had been harvested from the field but needed to be dried, uh, and they were dumping it on Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, local office, saying, how are we supposed to do this? Because we don't have propane. All of the heaters that dry the corn in Quebec need propane, and they, they didn't have propane. How ironic Which, is all of this, Marvin, especially <laughs> considering the pipeline issue? My goodness, build them a damn pipeline to get them their propane. Well, absolutely. Well, mind you, the pipelines we've talked about are actually always about oil. They're not necessarily about propane. But I do think there is a great touch of irony here, as Jason <laughs> Kenny pointed out. You know, if you want propane, we can get it to you. Let's just slap you as a pipeline. And we'll pipe it right directly to you. But that, you know, that's what they were doing. Now, uh, also yesterday in Saskatchewan, a major potash miner, this is where you, you know, dig this stuff out of the ground, and then, of course, you eventually throw it back onto the soil to help fertilize. Potash is a great source of fertilizer. They were announcing layoffs. They said, look, we have no point in us mining and stockpiling it. we got no place to ship it. We need those trains to go. So every aspect of our economy is touched by rail service. The management of CN were only able to keep 10% of the trains functioning. So 90% of the rail traffic over the last week had disappeared. If you lived near a train track and you thought it seemed quiet, that's why. 
and this is going to restart tomorrow morning. But I think it's a reminder to us all that we often take trains or, for that matter, logistical systems, whether they're trucks or whatever it happens to be, boats. I think we take a lot of that for granted. And, and when a strike like this happens, it shows you how interdependent all facets of the economy are. Considering our transportation corridor, is this a need for an energy corridor? Is this another discussion for uh, uh, being more open-minded about getting everything across the country east to west? Yeah, I, I think the the answer is yes. I don't think I necessarily needed the CN strike to drill that point home. Um, there's another great meme making its way on Facebook these days about the amount of foreign oil that comes into Canada, something like $17 billion a year is being imported. Why are we not just using our own oil? Well, the short answer is where we have oil is not where we have refineries. It's cheaper for private companies to actually import the oil from Saudi Arabia by boat than to try to bring it by train car from Alberta to wherever the refinery is. Uh, so it is a reminder, again, that pipelines do serve a function. And to me, it's always about a balancing act. I am not, if there's people here who are listening to us who are very environmental, I am not saying that we should fill our Great Lakes full of oil and, and wipe out the duck population. On the other hand, I don't think we can can go completely the other direction either and say never again another pipeline. There are there are good things these things accomplish, and for the foreseeable future, meaning the next 25 to 30 years, oil is still going to be a significant part of what drives our economy. You know, it's interesting you should say that because obviously another report out this week in regard to what Canada needs to do uh, in order to meet its targets and help the world. You know what seems to be impossible to find, though, Marvin, is the answer to the question of how the transition is going to work. What does the world have to do to meet these targets? How would the world need to change in order to make those targets? We're not having those discussions. No, no, we're not. And and I, but I do have part of an answer for you. Uh, most of the people who want us to transition are making some assumptions about how technology will evolve over the next 20 to 30 years. So if I use it in 2019 and I say to people, okay, as of this year, you have to give up your gas-powered car and go to an electric car, I think correctly, many people are saying, oh, I, I have a concern there. Electric cars don't uh, hold their charge as well in colder weather. I don't get as long of a distance. Geez, I want to drive from here to London, Ontario, and back. I can't do that on a single charge. And if I want to charge, want to pull in someplace, it's going to take three, four, five hours to charge the batteries. I don't have that kind of time if I'm driving on some cross-country trip. So while electric technology works very nicely for little commuter trips around the city, if you have short runs and you can plug the car in every night, it works very well. But it isn't necessarily today ready to replace our vehicles. However, I'm going to look into my crystal ball and say I can see that day coming much more clearly than I did 20 years ago. I don't know if it's three years from now or five years or seven years, but I think it's coming. And then as it comes, how, how are we going to adopt this? What are we going to do as we go forward? So there's all kinds of social questions here. There are, in Alberta, truly tens of thousands of jobs related to oil extraction, oil processing, oil shipping. If we reduce our dependence on oil, those people are going to be out of a job. Then what do we transition them to? Are they going to move and do green technologies where they have solar-powered uh, generation or wind-powered generation, or will they go to another sector altogether? I don't know all of those answers, and I think we have to have that discussion. 
I, I just don't like the fact that people tend to pick the two extremes, sort mm. of the all or nothing extreme, yeah. rather than saying that the reality is somewhere probably more in the middle. Well said. Marvin Ryder's been with us, business professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. The rail strike is over. Marvin, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. Uh, let's bring in Jasme Gunnett, Vice President of National, uh, of, sorry, National, uh, National Affairs, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and with us now. Jasme, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, nice speaking with you. Uh, so how how uh, how uh, uh, how um, uh, edgy was industry in the length of this strike? Are you surprised this strike went on as long as it did? Uh, a little bit, yes. The last uh, strike was in 2009. Uh, it ended with a negotiation like this one, and uh, let me tell you that many businesses are feeling uh, relieved right now uh, because a small business in Canada often have um, you know fewer financial resources uh, to uh, face a long uh, strike like uh, we uh, had and so uh, many of our members are feeling relieved that today uh, negotiation uh, ended up in a new collective uh, agreement and uh, and uh, workers will be uh, back at work uh, tomorrow uh, how long can a, the, the country go before it starts to feel the pinch of a national <laughs> rail strike? It seems to be about a week. Yeah, it's about a week. Yes, you're right. Um, a longer strike would have hurt the economy uh, even more. Uh, we already saw some closures uh, and some uh, layoffs uh, coast to coast. Uh, for example, uh, some uh, potash mine mm-hmm. in Saskatchewan. Um, the uh, car terminal in Halifax, a uh, worker there received a layoff notice. Uh, um, there are more than 5,000 cars of grain each week uh, moving on CN rail uh, through the prairies. Uh, some uh, chemical companies, uh, chemical product companies uh, south of Quebec. Uh, I mean, many companies had to send notice to their employees saying that. Uh, there would be a temporary layoff. And so it takes about a week before you see um, the economy uh, getting uh, uh, slowed down by a CN rail strike like uh, we uh, we had. Uh, do we appreciate how much this railway across the country means to us? Are we too uh, dependent on rail? We, uh, we do uh, depend on rail for many um, of our uh, goods that we wish to send to markets many of the goods that we need to receive and this is not only through for agriculture uh, it's also through for oil and gas mm-hmm. it's also through for mining uh, forestry is also dependent on rail and uh, as uh, as well as the manufacturing and uh, and and other uh, um, area of our economy and um, it's uh, Many uh, small business are not big enough to uh, don't have the financial need, as I said at the beginning, to face a long strike, and uh, and so they need uh, they need rail to to move their goods around. Many sure. wouldn't think that small business would rely on rail that much. Well, you know, if uh, if you take uh, the oil and gas or or mm-hmm. forestry, for example, you have many small businesses that provide. 
services yeah. to those industries. You have many contractor, independent contractor providing uh, services uh, for uh, larger companies. Uh, agriculture, agriculture or farmers uh, usually have, you know, uh, not that many employees uh, 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 working with uh, with them on when it's the harvest season, especially. And so, many small business are impacted because they are relying themselves on on rail, but they are also providing services for larger companies that uh, rely uh, uh, heavily on uh, on uh, on rail uh, to move goods uh, across the country and outside the country as well. Uh, when we're stopped at railway crossings, many times we see the many tankers that go along uh, these rail routes. Should we be building more pipelines to free this space up for other goods? <laughs> That's what uh, Jason Kenney is saying uh, to the premier of uh, Quebec. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's it has been a debate that uh, you know this this debate has been going on for many years now. Um, I think. More the more alternative we have to move goods and commodity around, the better it is for the country. And so, whether it's by train, adding pipeline capacity, um, moving uh, goods uh, easier uh, between provinces in trucks. I mean, the more we can have alternative, the better the economy will be. Jasmine Gounet has been with us, Vice President of National Affairs, Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Jasmine, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.